Why is Orlando a bad poet? Repetition is good in some cases, you know, yeah. but this is a, like a bad case of repetition where just every other line, Rosalind, <laughs> sorry, I get this rhyme in. This is perfect. I am a poet. I feel like this is Shakespeare's equivalent of like the middle schooler writing his crush a love letter. Yeah, there's there's some romantic imagery, but it's all cliche. It's like no jewel is like Rosalind and all the pictures are black to Rosalind and no face is like Rosalind's. There's no original imagery. It's all just very surface level, very cliche, and it's not that touching. (laughs) Hi again, everyone. Today I'll chat with Emma and Rachel about Shakespeare's play As You Like It. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that perhaps is my most audacious writing prompt yet. Today's quote of the day, I'll admit, is rather strange. As You Like It is a pastoral play, which simply means that it explores the difference between the country and the city, or rural life and urban life. This is a theme that is quite dear to me. In fact, I've explored it a few times now in a special course about the pastoral, or poetry and nature. This is a quote by Paul Deman, in which he's explaining the importance of the pastoral genre to poetry itself, and the way in which poetry often self-consciously explores the relationship between what is natural and what is artificial, and which of these two things, natural or artificial poetry, exactly is. He says this, What is the pastoral convention, then, if not the eternal separation between the mind that distinguishes and the originary simplicity of the natural. There is no doubt that the pastoral theme is, in fact, the only poetic theme, that it is poetry itself. As You Like It is not only a supreme achievement of poetry, but it takes, as one of its many themes, poetic utterance. What is poetic utterance? What is it for? What should it be for? What should it look like? How should we compose it? And for a discussion about this and many other things, let's go into that chat with me and Emma and Rachel. Hi, Emma. Hi. How, How are, are you? you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm doing well. Here's Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Let me, I emailed the class this last night, but let me just repeat it. I think it's worth repeating because this is a slightly strange thing to have assigned. I mean, on the surface, it maybe it seems like a slightly strange thing to assign in a class about writing poetry, a Shakespeare play. Um, so why am I assigning it? Horace says that poetry should delight and instruct. I think that's more or less timeless advice. Um, in his preface to Shakespeare, Samuel Johnson praised Shakespeare's place for containing, quote, human sentiments in human language, which I think is a phrase I've mentioned before, but is one of those phrases that's very casual and off the cuff seeming, doesn't really seem to be extremely wise, but I think it is because what is great poetry if not human sentiments, human feelings and human thoughts in language that is human? Keats, I love this moment from a Keats poem, poetry should be a friend to soothe the cares and lift the thoughts of man. So what I would like to spend some time doing with both of you right now is to highlight a few, only a few of the moments in this play that both delight and instruct me, that lift my thoughts and soothe my cares, and that put human sentiments in human language. Shakespeare has this 
miraculous ability to conjure people that seem like people. I mean, not all of his characters are as three-dimensional as the others, but I want to highlight, and so we only have, I'm now blabbing and blabbing and blabbing. The the sands are slipping through the hourglass. We we certainly will not be able to to perform anything like full coverage on this play, yeah? But I just wanted to highlight a few, a few of the moments that do these three things, delight and instruct us, soothe our cares and lift our thoughts, and that teach us about how to turn black little marks on a page into people. <laughs> how does Shakespeare do this? So I'll stop talking. And I mean, I, I have highlighted three or four scenes that I, I would love to get to, but what moment or scene or character or bit or page speaks the most to you, is your favorite, or teaches you something important about how to be a writer? Would one of you like to take us first to a place? Um, I can. One of my favorite parts, which is maybe, I don't know how good this is, that it's my favorite part. Um, but I really like the part where Rosalind, as the man who I can never remember his name. Yeah, G- Ganymede, yeah. Ganymede, yeah. Is talking to Phoebe. Yeah, Phoebe. Phoebe, and she's she's telling her, like, you're pretty plain. Like, you're kind of ugly. This, you should be really grateful that this guy likes you. And I just thought that was so funny. And um, especially because it's like a woman telling yep. this other woman that she's pretty ugly and should be grateful that she has this affection from a man. Would you want to take us there and read a few chunks and yeah, just enthuse about it? Explain why you loved it? It's scene five. Of act, act three, I think. Act three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Act three, scene five. So Phoebe, while you're looking for the chunk that you want to read, Phoebe um, and Silvius are these quarreling. They're not quite lovers yet, yeah? But they're one of the pairs of the play. Phoebe loves Silvius until she sees Rosalind, who she thinks is a man. She falls immediately in love with her slash him. One of the wonderful things about Shakespeare. And in order to rebuff these advances that Phoebe is making, Rosalind is quite harsh. I have two little snippets that are my favorite. The first one is it starts with what though you have no beauty. I don't know if you guys are there, but she says, what though you have no beauty as by my faith, I see no more in you than without candle may go dark to bed. Must you therefore, must you be therefore proud and pitiless? And then later on in that same sort of monologue, she says, Tis not your inky brows, nor your black silk hair, your bugle eyeballs, nor your cheek of cream that can entame my spirits to your worship. And and it's just funny because she just is so harsh <laughs> to this to this woman who she she hasn't even met before this point. And I think Shakespeare does such a good job of immediately planting an image of both of these characters in our head just from this one conversation. Um, we know Rosalind pretty well before this. But as when she's dressed up as a man, she can say all of the things that she can't say is like a proper genteel hmm. daughter of a duke. So she's she's very bold when she's dressed up as a man and just will say straight up the things that she feels. Um, I also think it must have been some added comedy with the fact that all the actors at this time were men. Mm-hmm. So it was a man playing a woman playing a man. <laughs> talking to another man playing a woman and that whole added comedic effect, I think yeah. must have been really funny. Pointing out the fact that 
he slash she is ugly because you know he would have been wearing probably this very garish makeup um not exactly convincing uh portrayal probably yeah we like this moment doesn't it? it first of all it delights us we think oh how delightful someone saying someone being delightfully rude you know we, we Maybe we shouldn't like this, and maybe it's a guilty pleasure, but it's absolutely a pleasure. But also, it's a surprise. I mean, this is one thing that makes Rosalind so human, isn't it? So convincing and so real that she defies our expectations. We would expect her to say, Oh, how can I spare her feelings? I'll try to let you down gently. But Shakespeare, Shakespeare swerves away from that expectation and directly into something very, very surprising. But mistress, know yourself. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and then she says, thou, uh, where, where is this? You were not made for all markets. <laughs> you are not for all markets. <laughs> wow. I think it's just such a funny thing that, like, Rosalind does quite frequently is that she just, like, defies her expectations as she's dressed up as Ganymede. Especially when then she's dressed up as Ganymede, but then is playing Rosalind for Orlando. And they're just several comments throughout where they're like this isn't really what women would do like you wouldn't be a very good woman candy meetings like no i i wouldn't would i that's so weird and i think it's just like such a funny thing to do to have rosalind dress up as a man playing then herself well then no one knows that it's mm-hmm. just rosalind all along you know what Ganymede? you don't really like women do you <laughs> no <laughs> And there's that wonderful moment where Cecilia, after Orlando leaves, Cecilia says something like, did, did you have to berate our sex so much in your love prate? You're playing this love game. Why did you have to be so mean to women? So Cecilia is kind of slightly offended that Ro- Rosalind is taking this too far. But I, that's why I love Rosalind. She seems unbounded by any of the expectations put upon her by the court, but even by her own gender. You know, it's like she, she, no one is her boss. That's what I love about her so much. No one is her boss. She's her own boss. She'll say whatever she wants. If it upsets men, it upsets men. If it upsets the court, it upsets the court. She finds ways to subvert so many yeah, societal expectations. Yeah. Uh, can I go to, uh, I just want to follow this up because since we're on the topic, let me go to a scene and then we'll go to a scene of Rachel's choosing. Is that okay? Absolutely. So this is act four, scene one. I was just going to bring that up. That's oh, very good. Yeah. So I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this. So I think maybe the main question, I i mean, I think this is kind of obviously delightful, so we don't have to explain why it's delightful, but it's a very difficult thing, isn't it, to describe how bits of ink on a page, vowels and consonants, can become convincingly human. I'm not sure that we can answer this question, and yet I think it's very important to try. So I'm going to read these lines, and then I want to answer, because... We saw Frost doing this in kind of these dramatic dialogue poems. Remember that? And Derek Walcott was inventing these characters and putting words in their mouth, and they seem very real. So this is a thing that poets very often do. So this is my question. What are the specific words and phrases that make Rosalind seem real and not like a fake person? Yeah? So Jaquies, weirdly, I think his name is pronounced Jaquies and not Jack. They uh, ang- anglify it. He, he, this famous melancholic uh, enters the scene. I prithee, pretty youth, let me be better acquainted with thee. Rosalind, they say you are a melancholy fellow. I am so. I do love it better than laughing, says Jaquies. And then Rosalind says, those that are in extremity of either are abominable fellows. 
and betray themselves to every modern censure worse than drunkards. Jacoby says, why, it is good to be sad and say nothing. And Rosalind says, why then, tis good to be a post. I want to keep reading, but it's such an unfair question. Can you read my mind and tell me why I love this post? It's, it's good to be sad and say nothing. Well, then you might as well be a post, you know, a telephone post or something. This, this just gets me every time. Why is this so good? This is really a bad question, but any thoughts about this? I think maybe because like it's such a casual thing, you know, or like sometimes Shakespeare is kind of hard to read because, you know, it's old English. And so, right. you know, he makes these jokes and you're like, I, I know this is a joke. I just don't exactly know what it means. Right. But to have like a line that's just so casual, like, why then tis good to be a post. And so it's, you know, still has like that old English, but like we, we instantly know exactly what she's talking about. I feel like we can just all relate when someone just says something you're like, well, then that's nothing. And so I think it's just such a common human universal experience. But like we've all had moments in like our own lives of this where someone just says something so dumb. And you're like, no. <laughs> That's excellent, Rachel. I, and the and the way and what you've emphasized is important too. Um, there are in Shakespeare a lot of very clotted puns and a lot of very perhaps overly witty jokes that were always eight steps behind but he's also very good at this extremely natural and extremely spontaneous and extremely clear dialogue and rhetoric this hasn't really aged well then it's good to be a post you'd have to change tis to its but that's all you'd have to do yeah. 400 years later this still sounds like a person so yeah and it's still the kind of joke that people tell like yeah. this kind of joke hasn't gotten old i'm gonna keep reading um jayquiz goes through this very long and it almost seems too practiced he's like that kind of person annoying person at a party that you get trapped with who you can tell is saying things to you that they've practiced at home you know what i mean you think oh geez please i have neither the scholar's melancholy which is emulation nor the musicians which is fantastical nor the courtiers which is proud Etc. Etc. I mean, all of these seem a little bit too rehearsed, don't they? A little bit too, too good to be spontaneous. Whereas every everything Rosalind says seems precisely spontaneous. Yeah. And then he ends this. He says, um, "But my melancholy is of mine own, compounded of many simples, extracted from many objects, and indeed the sundry contemplation of my travels, which by often rumination wraps me in a most humorous sadness." Rosalind, a traveler. By my faith, you have great reason to be sad. I fear you have sold your own lands to see other men's. And to have seen much and to have nothing is to have rich eyes and poor hands. Jaquiz tries to counter with, yes, I have gained my experience. To which Rosalind replies, and your experience makes you sad. I had rather have a fool to make me merry than experience to make me sad. And to travel for it too. So she just has wonderful pity on him. You know, you've wasted your life. We'll move on just for the sake of time. Any last comments about, so Jaquies, he had, he's this person who is, he has a kind of agenda, you know, I want to announce my sadness. And with just two or three lines, Rosalind deflate, totally deflates him and checkmates him, you know, in this wonderful way. Last words before we move on to a, a bit of Rachel's choosing. Jaquies, it's all very kind of like scripted and doesn't feel natural. Yeah. But I think that also still kind of like feels natural to who he is, you know, because Jacquees wants to 
be like the uh, new chord jester, you know? So he's constantly uh. like, all right, I need to write down my material so people uh. like me and I will get this job. And so he spends like his whole life, you know, just uh, trying Never to did. get everyone's attention and get this, you know, be the core jester, get this job, which then makes everything he says just feel off because he's so yeah. worried about scripting everything, which then, you know, Ros- Rosalind finds that out very quickly. And just like, that's a sad life. This isn't good. But it's still like natural for like him to do, if that makes sense. It totally does. Maybe we'll get time to look at his other The Seven Ages of Man speech, which is another kind of set piece that seems slightly too polished and rehearsed. And I I think it's beautiful. I like it. And I'm quite compelled by the rhetoric of nor the musicians, which is fantastical, nor the courtiers, which is proud. So I don't want to imply that I don't like the way that Jaquees talks, but it is he doesn't seem as human because he he's he never is speaking quite as spontaneously here's a, here's a lesson i mean how we do this is is a different matter but if you want the people in your poems to sound like people make sure that their speech isn't too polished you know what i mean mm-hmm. okay rachel where should we go next um so one of my favorite parts is near the end act 5 scene 2 so this is when like they're all together um, and <laughs> Rosalind is trying to convince Phoebe that they're not in love, that yeah. she's in love with, with Sylvius. And Sylvius is like waxing poetry about how much he loves Phoebe. And Phoebe's like, yeah, but that's how I feel for Ganymede. And just like this constant like repetition of Sylvius just being like, this is, I love you, Phoebe. And she's like, yeah, I feel the way about him though. <laughs> And again, I I don't love any woman at all. So that's one of my favorite parts. Just like page 93, like the whole section of just Sylvia's like pouring his heart out to Phoebe. And Phoebe's just constantly like shooting it down the entire time. There's this very weird use of repetition, like an eye for Ganymede, an eye for Rosalind, an eye for no woman. You know, Rosalind keeps insisting. Um, but are there any specific phrases or passages that you want to highlight? Um, I really like Rosalind's little paragraph after that whole repetition. Pray you know more of this. Uh, Tis like the howling of Irish wolves against the moon. (laughs) To Sylvia's, I will help you if I can. To Phoebe, I would love you if I could. Tomorrow meet me all together. To Phoebe, I will marry you if I ever marry woman. And I'll be married tomorrow. To Orlando, I will satisfy you if I ever satisfied man. And you shall be married tomorrow. To Sylvia's, I will content you if what pleases you contents you, and you shall be married tomorrow. To Orlando, as you love Rosalind, meet. To Sylvia's, as you love Phoebe, meet. And as I love no woman, I'll meet. So fare you well, I have left you commands. Yeah. Rosalind in this situation is almost being a playwright. You know, she's turning life, she's turning her surrounding situation into a play. And is orchestrating the characters. Tomorrow this will happen. I'll perform this way. You're gonna, this is what's gonna happen. It's a wonderful bit where she's like, I'm a magician, you know, remember that? I have all these magic tricks. So in a way, she's kind of celebrating the way in which art, fantasy, pretend, make-believe, fiction can once in a while, every once in a while, become true. And it is a magic trick when it does. And I also just love that she's in total control. Like she's the director of the film. You stand there, you stand there, you stand there. No one is in more control of any of these people than Rosalind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to another place. I wanted to talk about irony 
and how we know when a piece of text is ironic. I think that's an important thing to talk about as poets, as, as writers of any genre. What irony is, what it looks like, how you notice it as a reader, and how you employ it as a writer. So can we go to Act 2, Scene 1? We're not talking about this play. We've kind of dove right in, which is great, and talked about specific moments. We haven't given a general overview of the plot. Um, there's this court, this palace or city. It's hard to tell exactly. That's being ruled by this more or less evil duke who has exiled his brother and several of his brother's followers to the Forest of Arden. And the first time we see this exiled brother, whose name is Duke Senor, we see him saying this. So he he just keep, keep this. This is this context is important. This is a duke. He's lived his whole life as a duke in a palace. He's not country folk, you know. The first thing he says when we see him is this, Act 2, Scene 1. Now, I think there's a lot of irony here. My question is, this is my question. What is it about the words on the page here that make us suspicious that he means what he says? Maybe I should back up. What is irony? Well, many ways to define this, but maybe the, a good umbrella definition is that it's whenever there's a difference between what is said and what is meant. Think of Sylvia Plath's poem, The Applicant, as deeply ironic, you know? Most of Zimborska's poetry, I would say, is deeply ironic. Friday was nice. Friday was nice and we were friends by Elizabeth Bishop. There's irony there. So there's something meant that is beyond or other than what's simply said. So I read these lines by Duke Senior and I think, no, you can't really mean this. How do we know what is ironic and what isn't? Now my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here we feel not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which, when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I'll just stop talking. Yeah, well, maybe I've already primed the pump too much, but should we take him seriously? Does he mean what he says? How do we know that maybe he doesn't? I feel almost like the amount of times he relates back to his old life uh. um, with the pomp and, you know, the fancy houses. And and he's like, oh, these woods are way better than court. And and he, he also relates them to really awful parts of nature, too, like the the chilling winter wind that's so cold mm. and he's like, I don't even care. And then the ugly toad and venomous and adversity. And, and he doesn't bring to mind the pleasant parts of nature where he's like, well, yes, I mean, it's no palace, but look at these wildflowers or look at this collection of, I don't know, beautiful trees. He's like, no, the ugly venomous toad is what I'm going <laughs> to choose to think of the place where I am right now. And the icy fang of the churlish chiding winter's wind. I mean, he does say, find tongues in trees, books in the running brooks. 
which might seem slightly beautiful. But I think you're right, Emma, that it the fact that he's going out of his way to convince us, no, I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable, you know? It's like what my son does. My son is a very wonderful and sensitive child. And whenever he feels guilty about something, he'll tell me 10 times that he doesn't feel guilty. Whenever he's clearly sad, he'll tell me 10 times that he's happy. So one way maybe that we signal irony as writers is slight or moderate overstatement. Here's a good example. The art of losing isn't hard to master. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Remember this? The art of losing isn't hard to master. I swear. I swear it's not. The more she says it, the more we think, now, come on, you're, you're trying to convince yourself. The thing that like stands out the most to me is that like the very beginning line Hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Like, just this life is better, guys, isn't it? Can't mm. can't we all agree that living in the woods is so much better than living in the nice house over there? Because um, it it just makes me think of like my when we were little, my cousin like one time accidentally put like sugar all over his French fries instead of salt, <laughs> but he wasn't about to admit that that was a mistake. And so he ate all of it and was like, no, I, I actually like it like this. It tastes good this way. It's so much better living in the woods than in that nice house over there. I think mm. we can all agree on this. What a great example. That's a perfect example. In fact, Amen's the next thing that this other kind of um, one of the Duke Senior's cohort says is, I would not change it. You know, pouring sugar onto his fries. No, I'm doing this on purpose. You know, I, I chose... <laughs> You think, no, of course you would. Of course you would. You know, the fact that you have to say it means that you probably would. Doesn't it? It is great poetry, though. Can we talk about this little chunk of poetry as poetry? This is beautiful writing. Isn't it beautiful writing? What's what's so like, I don't know. Can we point to a word or a phrase or a sound or a line that is beautiful as a piece of poetry? I mean, the part that stands out to me is like the ending lines, finds tongues in trees, books in the books in the running brooks, sermons in the stones and good in everything. Yeah. Because a lot of it has like that nice like repetition, you know, tongues in trees, the yeah. books in brooks, sermons in stones. It's so beautiful because, of, as you say, the alliteration, but also the I think the parallelism finds this and this, this and this, this and this. We get a triplicate of. Trees, Brooks, and Stones, which opens out into this wonderful abstract everything and good in everything, you know? Tongues and trees, books in the brooks, there's even some internal rhyme there. I think that you could lift those lines right out of this poem, plop them into a poem by Derek Walcott or Robert Frost or maybe Elizabeth Bishop, certainly the first two, maybe the third, and an unsuspecting reader might not notice. Do you know what I mean? Another more proof, more evidence that Shakespeare certain aspects of Shakespeare have aged. I'm not going to I'm not going to sound like a crazy person and make crazy claims, but so much of this hasn't aged. He still invented he has invented the idiom in which we're all still swimming. Um That's true. Can we talk about yeah, I guess let's go to Touchstone's not Touchstone. Jaques's Seven Ages of Man because that's, that's another one of the most famous bits, right? I think the context here is important. So this is act 2. Scene seven. Maybe I want to back up a little bit a lot here and talk about a lot of the context. So Orlando and Adam have had to run away because Oliver is going to kill them, remember? So they're now, here's another follow-up answer to the question we were just uh, contemplating. Remember, um, what, what is the very first thing that 
Rosalind and Cecilia and Touchstone say as soon as they get into the forest? How do they react to being in the forest, remember? It's scene four in act two. Yeah. And they're whining, you know, I can go no further. (laughs) My legs are weary. I can go no further. When I was at home, I was in a better place. You know, they hate it. Of course they do. You know, of course they do. So, of course, when Orlando and Adam get to the forest, they're starving because they're in a forest, you know, so they're desperate for food. Orlando bursts into the scene of Duke Senor and his people. And Orlando says, I almost die for food and let me have it. And Duke Senor responds so gently, sit down and feed and welcome to our table. Orlando is surprised at this gentleness and this generosity. Speak you so gently, pardon me, I pray you. I thought that all things had been savage here. And then Duke Senor says, true it is that we have seen better days and have with holy bell been knolled to church. That's so beautiful. And sat at good men's feasts and wiped our eyes of drops that sacred pity hath engendered and therefore sit you down in gentleness. So, you know, we're not barbarians. We grew up in a place where there was churches that taught us, you know, we were within hearing distance of church bells. So we know how to treat people who need help. I find that so beautiful. Duke Senior says, thou seest we are not alone, unhappy. This wide and universal theater presents more woeful pageants than the scene wherein we play in. And this comment by Duke Senior prompts Jaquies, oh, I have, a, I have a little thing to say about theater. I have a practice speech. Now I'll deliver it. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress eyebrow. Then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice, turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends the strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Okay, so what has made this this little chunk of text so lasting and famous? Why is it beautiful? And what can it teach us about how to write poetry? It kind of holds the same like metaphysical appeal to me as like a poem about poetry like where if this is a play and it's talking about all the world's a stage and men and women merely players very good um and then not only does it circle around that way but it goes like the circle of life sort of to where you start Uh out one way and you go around and you end up back the same way sans teeth sans eyes sans taste sans everything yeah so just I mean, just structurally, if we're ignoring all of the beautiful language, it, it's pleasing to read. It, I mean, not all poems are symmetrical in this way. 
I, I don't know. I, don't, I won't. I won't waste time trying to think of examples of poems that are. Well, here we go. One came into my mind. Remember, uh, in the waiting room by Bishop. You know, in in Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to the dentist's office. Right, and then all this weird stuff happens to her psyche, and then the very last few lines are. But it was, and then it was 1918, and winter again in Worcester, Massachusetts. So this is a good. This is one way that you can structure a poem in the shape of a circle. And maybe that's why it seems excisable and transportable because it has this self-contained structure. So if you're writing a poem, how should I end? How should I end? Again, not all poems do this, but if you're stuck, try it. Try seeing if you can get some kind of symmetry or circular emotion. What else could we add to why this chunk is so beautiful? Rachel? I think mostly just like the opening lines of it, you know, being like all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, you know, because that's like a very famous line. Good poetry for me, at least, like often really touches into like universal experiences that we can all kind of relate to. And so starting out like this poem, you know, just being like everything's just a play and we all grow and change and go through so many different things everyone can just instantly relate to that and be like, yeah, that's, that's exactly like my life, you know, because who I am today as like a 22 year old in college is very different from who I was like a 16 year old in high school, Mm. who again, is very different from the five-year-old who was just about Mm. to go into elementary school, you know? And so they're all just very different people. And so they're all me, but they're all like different Mm. little characters that I played. Um, And as I go through life, you know, you constantly are changing and becoming like a new person. Um, so it's like this new character that you get to try out and have new experiences and like live a new life as mm-hmm. each, in each phase of your life. It's self-conscious. You know, you've both made this point. It knows that it's talking about its own form as a play. I don't think all poetry is self-conscious in this way, but it kind of is. Poetry knows that it's artificial in some way. We see We see Frost very often talking about Poems as poems. We see Walcott often talking about poems as poems. The art of losing. That's a self-conscious poem. It's it's about art. You know what I mean? So poems very, very often take advantage of self-awareness. How can I make my poem self-aware? Keep that in mind. As you say, Rachel, that's, that's an important thing that this poem teaches me. I, I'm calling it a poem. Even though I know I probably shouldn't, I'm going to keep calling it a poem. It's universal. You're probably all sick of hearing me make that point. I am a narcissist and I demand that all poems I read are about me. You know, my, my favorite Sylvia Plath poems are about me. My favorite Bishop poems are about me. I think this is true. I think great poems become lasting because they are about all people at all times. I've read this, you know, cause I'm not only a, a narcissist, but a sadist. I've inflicted this little chunk of poetry on my children. And, um, Especially my son had this bout where he didn't want to go to school. He's really, really fighting it. We had, it's, it, it, you know, it was about six weeks where it was like a daily crisis and tears, you know, on both sides of the equation. So I, I read him this little chunk here. Um, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school. My son's eight, and I saw in his eyes a flash of recognition. You know, I think he felt seen. I think he felt heard. I think he he loved this because he thought, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, you're telling me that this is, this is how it's always been? 
and I'm not being picked on in particular by the universe, I think that's a comforting thing. So it's about all of us. I also like what you say, Rachel, about change. It, it, it takes us from the moment of birth to the moment of death. So it has universal appeal, broad scope, and not to mention just, we maybe we haven't mentioned this because it's too obvious. Look at the language, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, the lover who makes a ballad to his mistress's eyebrow. <laughs> Um, reminds me we should talk about why Orlando's poetry is bad let's set a little agenda here because we have 14 minutes so this is what we'll do for the remaining 14 minutes I, I want to finish up asking why we shouldn't take this little speech as the philosophy of this play I think it too is ironic then I want to talk about why Orlando's poetry is bad and then there's one more little um, Rosalind thing where she talks about love that I want to end on Jaquez is a downer. Sans, I mean, this is so depressing. Mere oblivion. Sans teeth. Sans, sans, of course, without, you know, it's just this one syllable word, French word, without. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So we end in nothing and as nothing. I don't think the poem believes this. The poem. <laughs> I don't think the play believes this. I'm going to read what happens next, and I want you both to tell me why what happens next in the play is important. In what way is what happens next a contradiction to what we just read? That's my question, yeah? Sans everything. Enter Orlando with Adam, who is an old man. This is important. Duke Signor, welcome. Set down your venerable burden and let him feed. Orlando, I thank you most for him. Adam, so had you need. I scarce can speak to thank you for myself. Duke Signor, welcome. Fall to, I will not trouble you as yet to question you about your fortunes. Give us some music and good cousin, sing. Jack Hughes is like going into, you know, throughout life, you know, you just slowly start to slip back, you know, going through that circle of just like going back, thinking about yourself until reverting back into that childishness until you just turn into nothing. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after we have Orlando who came in like sword out, ready to steal food for Adam. And then just very gently, you know, brings him in. It's like, thank you so much yeah. for letting me help my friend. And then Adam is like, thank you for helping both of us. And so then you have then immediately after just being like, in your old age, you're going to only think about yourself again, and then you're going to die. Yeah. And then immediately you have Adam, who's very devoted to Orlando and Orlando, who's very devoted to Adam, which is just yeah. immediately contradicting everything that Jack Hughes just ended on. And Duke Senior too. I mean, welcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you, you're when you're old, you will be left alone with nothing and with no one. Shakespeare is saying, no, 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 no. Because there are people who will say to you, welcome, sit down, eat. You know, the people are loving and generous. You know, I think Jaquez is being proven wrong here. Okay. Why is Orlando a bad poet? And what mistakes does he make in his writing that we can avoid? Things on page... 50 act three scene two there's a few moments where very good yeah <laughs> rosalind comes in and starts reading from 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 the east yes. to western end no jewel is like rosalind her worth being mounted on the wind through all the world bears rosalind all the pictures fairest lined are but black to rosalind 
let no face be kept in mind but the Pharaoh Rosline. And the touchstone says, you know, basically, I can do way better than this off the cuff. And he does this parody of it, you know. This is the very false gallop of verses, Rosalind. I found them on a tree, and then they just keep making fun of them. You know, tedious Rosalind calls them a tedious homily. So what mistakes is Orlando making? Repetition is good in some cases, you know. Um, Just like we were talking about, like, um, the art of losing is not hard to master, you know. Like, that repetition of the line just adds to, like, the desperation. Very good. But this is, like, a bad case of repetition where just every other line, Rosalind. (laughs) Sorry, I get this rhyme in. This is perfect. I am a poet. And so it was so funny because when I was reading it, I was listening to like the audio so I could oh, good, stay focused yeah. on it better. And so then to hear the person reading it, you know, just uh, Western end, Rosalind, wind, Rosalind, and then just go, various lined, are but black to Rosalind, <laughs> and then just changes it like halfway through. It's just yeah. so uncomfortable. That's true. Uh, the two excellent answers there, Rachel. Uh, it's tedious. It's it's repetition in a bad way. So I think that what, what one thing we've noticed throughout this course in several instances is that whenever poets employ repetition, they always go out of their way to make sure that they are introducing variation as well. The Art of Losing is a great example of this, but also think of Plath. She'll repeat several words or several phrases, but in di- diff- with differences. We talked about this, yeah? Not so Orlando. Rosalind, 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 Rosalind. We think, okay, the eye doesn't the eye just start to skim? It's like I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Nothing new, yeah. nothing is changing. So we get the sense that we don't have to keep reading. And also, mm-hmm. yeah, he's clearly bending the sounds of words to fit the rhymes in where he wants to. Everything is being sacrificed to get a rhyme, even pronunciation. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a list of particular answers, but anything else we could add, Emma? What are your thoughts? I feel like this. Is Shakespeare's equivalent of like the middle schooler writing his crush a love letter? Yeah, there's there's some romantic imagery, but it's all cliche. Yeah, and it's it's like no jewel is like Rosalind, and all the pictures are black to Rosalind, and no face is like Rosalind's. There's no original imagery that that makes you stop and think and go, oh, I see how that how that relates to his love for her. It's all just very surface level, very cliche, and it's not that touching. <laughs> no jewel is like Rosalind. We think, oh, I've seen this before. This isn't, the poet W.H. Auden once said, once said this wonderful thing where um, if, a, if a woman receives, I guess I mean, it's true across genders, if anyone receives a love poem, you should be immediately suspicious because it's highly likely that the person who wrote it to you cares more about the poem than you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let me display my virtuosity. That becomes the focus more than the actual subject, the person behind the poem. That's why I have you this kind of forbidden topics list, because it's so hard to not you fall into cliche or sentimentality, especially with a topic like love. Even Jaquies elsewhere is parroting this, the mistress's eyebrow, yeah? So, um, if you write a love poem, what's the takeaway? I mean, if you write a love poem, how do you write a love poem well? I mean, I guess the easy way to respond would be just do the opposite. Don't be cliche. What Can we make a quick little 60-second list here? I think it kind of goes back to, I don't remember what the poem was or who it was by, but we read it near like the beginning of class. 
where like all of the details he was saying were like so so specific you know it's like when you made this reference at this time on Wednesday yes you know we're like that then feels like true love because then he like intimately knows her you know or like I know every aspect of you I remember when you said this on this day yeah well then this is just kind of like surface level like I think you look good which then doesn't <laughs> feel like love very good very good you're referring to uh, this poem yeah. that I really love called before by Mark Halliday before your wet hair hung above the black piano keys yeah or before you stroked my thigh in the old volvo yeah mm-hmm. oh wow there's a whole history there there's a whole he's paying attention to her and their memories it's very 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 particularized this is, goes back to a paradox that we have seen throughout the course we think that in order to achieve the universality that we praised jaquees for being able to accomplish we can't get particular but actually the opposite is true the more particular we get, the better our poems become. I just want to read one more thing. One thing I want to squeeze in is just this wonderful moment where Rosalind, this is page 76, act four, scene one. In this love game that they're playing, Rosalind, as Ganymede has said to Orlando, I'll pretend to be Rosalind. <laughs> We're now eight layers into Inception, yeah? Eight <laughs> layers deep. And you pretend to woo me. And so they're, they're having this game. Rosalind asks, what would you do then if I, if Rosalind rejected your love? And Orlando says, then in my own person, I die. Rosalind says, no, Faith, die by attorney, like die by proxy. Yeah? The poor world is almost 6,000 years old. And in all this time, there was not a man died in his own person in a love cause. Troy, so then she lists famous lovers. You know, Troilus, who was a famous lover, had his brains dashed out with a Grecian club. So he didn't die of love, even though that's what he's famous for, his love. Leander even though his, he's famous for his love for Hero, he drowned. Men have died from time to time, and worms have eaten them, but not for love. And this is so good. She's doing the opposite of Orlando. Orlando's brain is stuffed with cliche sentimentalities. Rosalind has a wisdom. She has a grounded wisdom. She knows too much about the human heart and the human mind to be under the impression that you could literally die from love. So Orlando inflates this cliche balloon, the sentimental, the sentimentality balloon, and she just wonderfully bursts it. And I, I love her for that. Uh, last words that you want to sneak in? I've now hogged all the time. What, what else did you want to say? Just really quick. I think the epilogue is very oh. interesting. The fact that it's written by Shakespeare but it's told directly to the audience from the yeah. perspective of the actor playing Rosalind. Yeah. Because it just says, if I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me. Yeah. And I just thought that was a fascinating way to end the play, just to break that fourth wall and just, I mean, all the world's a stage. It comes right back to that. I'm very glad you brought us here. Um, postmodernism before postmodernism, you know, meta literature, metafiction before metafiction. He breaks the fourth wall. I love what he, she says here. Like, you know, it's, you might not like seeing the lady get the epilogue, but who makes these rules? You know, (laughs) it makes just as much sense as giving the man the prologue. So why not? I love this. I charge you, O women of the love you bear to men to like as much of this play as please you like the parts that you liked, which is why it's called as you like it. Why is this play called as you like it? Because it's like, well, you get to like what you like. 
And if you liked this, you like that. And if you didn't didn't like that aspect, you didn't like that aspect. If you think we didn't even ask, maybe we will in class. If Duke Senior says it's so great to live in Arden, why do they go back to the court? Must be better in the court, yeah. But what is it about their sojourn in Arden that they needed that has healed them in some way? We'll talk about that in class. If you think this play means that life in the forest is better and that civilization is corrupt and bad, then as you like it. If you think it's telling you that the court is better and that there are lions in the jungle and we shouldn't live in the jungle as you like it, you know, whatever you want. This is great advice for reading. Read what you love, you know, read what you love. Um, challenge yourself, of course, but read what you love. Follow your loves as a reader and just, you know, read what you love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a great chat. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Bye. For today's writing prompt, I promised something audacious. I want you to write a little speech or soliloquy in the voice of one of these characters that is not modernized, that attempts to be Shakespearean. In other words, put words in Shakespeare's mouth. Try to write like Shakespeare. Why? Why am I having you do this? Well, for the same reason that pianists have to learn Beethoven by heart, and that painters are made to sit in galleries and museums and copy Rembrandt, stroke for stroke. First of all, it's an act of love and reverence and close reading. Read the text so closely that you can copy it. But second of all, it's one of the best ways to learn how to write poetry. Read the text so closely that you can mimic Shakespeare's rhythms and movements of thought and mixes of tones and metrical texture. If you read the text closely enough over and over and take this prompt seriously and spend an immense amount of time trying to get it right, trying to get your own version of some kind of Shakespearean monologue right, you may have a chunk of poetry that feels outdated and unnatural to you, but that's not the point. If you do this seriously, then you will, I promise, have learned more about poetry than you will perhaps in the entire semester. Do this exercise again and again and again, and you will develop the poetic muscle memory that you'll need to become a great poet. You may think that this stifles your own quote-unquote originality or quote-unquote voice, but mastery cannot come without an apprenticeship, and originality is nothing more than the sum total of the skills that you've acquired as a poet. And I think that a close study of Shakespeare, the best writer in English if not in any language, is the best place to acquire these skills. Well, this is the last reading of the semester. I hope you've enjoyed them all. I hope you've learned something from each of them about how to write poetry. And mostly, I hope that you've learned to aim high and use great poets as models in your own study of how to write poetry. I'm going to be releasing a very short kind of final thoughts recording in which I attempt, probably foolishly, to summarize what I hope that you've learned in a little bit more detail. But until then, keep enjoying as you like it, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great poet. Thank you.